As you turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, so good to be back here with you all. Always thankful, of course. But we, we really love the opportunity to open God's Word with you, and especially uh, for some of our young guys. Or not, they're not all young. Uh, James Clement, who preached the um, first Sunday after Thanksgiving, that was his first sermon to adults. He only taught students and youth before, and he wants to be a pastor one day, and he's a former Marine. Um, uh, has been out of the service uh, for about uh, five or six years, works at CenturyLink, uh, and wants to be a pastor. He's planning to go back to get his master's at uh, New Orleans Seminary. And so he's, he'll be the guy who preaches the first Sunday of the year for you. He's really wanting to learn how to do this well and, and be a blessing to God's people in, in the church. And so uh, it's not just young guys, it's, it's older guys who want opportunities to preach. And uh, we're thankful to be able to do that out here. And and uh, open God's Word. There's probably no time of the year I appreciate Sunday worship gatherings more than at this time. You know, life is already crazy busy, and then we get to Christmas and just add a whole bunch of stuff to life. So it's even crazier. And so to have this opportunity every Sunday, every Lord's Day, to come and just stop. You don't have to be anywhere for the next several minutes. You don't have to check off a list. You don't have to do any shopping. I assume you're not shopping on your phones right now. You don't have to uh, cook anything or wrap anything or, or, or attend anything. Just for the next several minutes, we can just stop and focus our minds and our hearts on what this is all about. Why do we get so crazy busy? Why do we cook all this delicious food? Why do we buy all these presents and give them away as gifts? Why do we decorate our homes and our church buildings these beautiful lights and flowers and so forth. Why do we do all these things? And that's where we want to turn our attention, our focus today, as we come together as God's people to focus our hearts and minds on Jesus, just to check and make sure that all of this that we're doing is a celebration of Jesus, and not just tradition, not just sentimentality, not just nostalgia. It really is Jesus and the joy of Christ that's deep inside of our hearts, that we're, we're focusing on Him and drinking deeply from Him. And that is why we worship in this way. We chase so many other wells and we drink from so many other wells that bring us temporary joy and satisfaction. But only Jesus will fill us up enough to pour ourselves out for others. And so for the rest of our time this morning, let's stop. Let's stop running, stop chasing, and let's savor Jesus. Let's drink deeply from the well that is Jesus. One of the themes that we celebrate at Advent is the theme of hope. Hope being the person of Jesus. First promised in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent. Prophesied throughout the Old Testament. And then after the people waiting with anticipation for thousands of years, there was this point in time in history. A silent night, a holy night, in a little town of Bethlehem, away in a manger, when a young mother, still a virgin, gave birth to a baby that was unlike any baby ever conceived in the history of the universe. And a lot of people are very comfortable with Jesus as a baby in a manger. A tiny little baby Jesus, as Ricky Bobby called him. That's not offensive. That's cute. But what is so paradigm-shifting and life-changing is what that baby came to do, which is the joy behind all the Christmas, the joy behind all the Christmas gifts. Like, like how excited would you be on Wednesday morning if you opened a gift 
that was the greatest gift you could ever conceive of, that you could receive. Whatever it is. Electronic device, someone paying off your mortgage, a trip somewhere. What, just just mind-blowing gift. And then someone says, okay, open the gift. It's yours, but you have to leave it under the tree. You can't enjoy it. You can't use it. You can't eat it. You can't ride it. You can't spend it or uh, uh, make use of it. It's not really that good of a gift, right? It's the same thing with Jesus. The joy of the baby in the manger wasn't just that he came, which is what we celebrate at Christmas, but it's what he came to do. You cannot stay beside the manger for long before you have to go to Golgotha. You have to go to the cross to truly celebrate and enjoy the gift that is Jesus Christ. And we see that in this passage today as clearly as any passage in Scripture. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. After taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And and James, with John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, Well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are we baptized with the baptism with, with, with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to him and said to them, called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, we are so thankful for your word So thankful that you have revealed yourself to us so that we could know you and we could have life through your Son and we could be continually transformed by your gospel. We thank you that you came and entered the brokenness of our sinful world to not only show us how to live, but to live a righteous life in our place, to die a sacrificial death for us and to rise from the dead, proving everything you said and did was true. I pray that that reality would be the reality of everyone in this room and that we would leave with a deeper affection and gratitude and appreciation for Jesus. And if it's not, if there's some who are here who don't know Jesus in this way, that today would be the day of their salvation. Make it so for your glory by your power, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We talk a lot in our church about how identity leads to mission and lifestyle. So who we are precedes what we do. And with some of the obvious teaching about humility and greatness that's in this passage, we might be tempted to just run quickly to, well, here's what you don't do, a la the disciples. 
Here then is what we do. So here's some steps to help you live this way, to live a humble and serving lifestyle. That would work, but this is such a high and lofty image of Jesus and the purpose of His coming. And I want to begin there and spend a lot of our time there because I think and I pray and hope that once you see the reality of verse 45, once the Spirit captivates your heart with that reality, once you're transformed by that reality, then naturally flowing from that will be a desire to live a life of humility and service to, to others. And that's the high point of this passage. One of the mountaintop theological truths is what's found in verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. A verse that John Piper says is what turns Christianity into the good news of the gospel. The good news that is the gospel. A verse that shows the purpose of Christmas, Jesus coming. The purpose of Him coming as a baby, that one day He would die and give His life as a ransom for many. When we think of a ransom, we mainly think of someone being kidnapped and held hostage and, and giving a ransom note to the family members so that the family or the corporation would pay a certain amount of money to set them free. But in the first century, the idea was a little bit different. Ransom was paying a price to someone who was a slave or someone who had been in prison in order to set them free. It's kind of the same idea without the kidnapping aspect. And Jesus came to die in order to purchase the freedom of slaves and those who were in bondage. You see this expressed in other passages like Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We who are slaves and prisoners to sin by nature and by choice we're in total bondage and unable to free ourselves. And here comes Jesus to pay the necessary price to break the shackles and set us free from prison. And some wonder why. Why did Jesus have to pay this ransom? Why was this ransom necessary? Why did it cost him so much? Why couldn't it have been any other way? And there's many ways to answer that, but, but think about it like this. Jesus dying to pay our ransom and set us free was the only way God could be both just and loving. Just and loving. So you go back to the garden, go back to our parents, Adam and Eve. Jesus, God gives them this one command, if you eat of this tree, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. Now he gave them tons of good commands. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Go enjoy all the creation that I've given you. Rule over it, have dominion over it. Go enjoy everything to the fullest, just don't do one thing. Eat from this one tree. If you do that, God said, if you disobey me, that's called sin. And if you do that, you will die. Now, death has to be understood in that context as, as more than when our physical bodies quit working. That is death. But the essence of any death is separation. And so when they rebelled in the garden and sinned, there was a separation. A separation between man and woman, Genesis 3 shows us. Their relationship would no longer be uh, easy. It would be difficult and complicated. Everybody who's married can say, amen, right? A separation between man and creation. Work would now be hard and difficult. Everybody who has a job or had a job can say, amen, work is not easy. And a separation between God and man. They were kicked out of the garden, no longer to return to walk with the Lord in the cool of the day. We were cut off from Him, separated. Why? Because we were sinful and we could not remain in the same relationship with God, who is the definition of holiness, justice, and righteousness. 
And because God is just and upholds his commands, he could have rightly and justly allowed us to remain in that state of separation and being cut off. But as we see unfolded in Scripture, God isn't just holy, just, and righteous. He is loving, gracious, and merciful. And so because He's loving, gracious, and merciful, you could say, well, He could just look at us and say, well, you messed up, but you know what? I'll just let you off. You're good. We won't worry about that little mistake you made. I'll just forgive everyone. No harm, no foul. But if God did that without dealing with the offense of sin then God would compromise His justice, righteousness, holiness, and, and, and His justness, the justice of God. A crime had been committed, a penalty is due, someone has to pay. You would not say that a judge is just if a judge walked into a courtroom and said, everyone's off the hook, the guilty go free. What about the offense? What about those who've been offended? What about the victims? What about the families of the victims? Who's going to make it right in their eyes? Who's going to pay restitution? Who's going to help them have some sense that there is right and there is wrong? What do you do with that? We would not say that that is a good judge. So how could a God who is just let the guilty experience His love? How could a God who is just let the guilty experience also His love? What if there was a way for Him to pay the price for the offense of the guilty? What if there's a way for him to pay the price for our sins? What if he took our guilt and punishment on himself? What if the judge took off his robe, came down from behind the bench, became our lawyer, advocating for us, ultimately proving that, yes, we are guilty, only deserving death, and then said, I'll take the sentence for them. I'll take the punishment for them in their place. One passage that speaks to this clearly, Jesse walked through this passage a couple weeks ago, Romans 5, 6 through 11, for while we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, not the godly, the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in the God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Christ, dying for us, saved by him from the wrath of God, because he took on the wrath of God by himself. This is the cup in the baptism Jesus is referring to in verses 38 and 39 of Mark chapter 10. Cup in this context and throughout the Old Testament refers to drinking down the wrath of God. The cup of God's wrath being poured out. Baptism carrying the idea of being immersed in the wrath of God. And Jesus asked the disciples in this passage, can you drink this cup? Can you be baptized with this baptism? Which is a rhetorical question, because obviously they can't. No one can pay this price that Jesus is about to pay. And even though his disciples would go on to suffer for his sake, which he alludes to in verse 39 when he says they would drink the cup and be baptized, you will suffer in a similar way before my sake. It's not the same as the cup and the baptism that Jesus endured. 
It wasn't the propitiationary sacrifice, the sacrificial substitutionary in our place that Jesus alone provided. Guys, we can't even begin to imagine what drinking that cup was like for Jesus. Right? We know that when Jesus was in the garden, hours before his arrest and praying, if there's any way to let this cup pass, let there be another way. A lady asked me one time, you know, why did Jesus pray that? If he knew there was no other way, then why did he even pray it? And I think the purpose behind God revealing that to us is to have us affirm there was no other way. There was no other way. This was the only way. We know that the stress from what he was about to face was enough to cause him to sweat drops of blood. A medical condition that only comes through shock and extreme stress. Your body is under so much pressure. You're literally being physiologically squeezed so that the blood crosses over this barrier and begins to come out of your sweat glands, your pores. Everybody in this room has been under a lot of stress in life, but I don't know if anybody's been under that kind of stress. As one author put it, God the Father set the cup down in front of the Son in the garden, and the Son knew He had to drink it down. The wrath of God on all of sinful humanity. The only one who was ever born and lived who didn't deserve to suffer that. The only one who had never sinned. He had to willingly drink it down for there to be salvation and redemption. Because God is just and sin had to be punished and God is love and so He lovingly did this for us. This is why He came. To pay this price and to set us free. Us, the guilty, the condemned, the sinful, the rebels who made all of this necessary. Like, just, and think how sinful we are. We are the only part of creation that dares shake our fists in the face of our Creator and say, not your way, my way. I'm in charge. And Jesus left the worship and glories of heaven and came here as a baby, wrapping His glory in flesh, growing up without committing a single sin, beginning His ministry, through which He would overwhelmingly demonstrate He was fully human while also being fully God. He would love, He would serve, He would teach, He would heal, He would blow our minds continually. And at the end of this perfect life of love, truth, and grace, mercy, compassion, joy, and power, He would willingly, lovingly give His life away so that sinful people like us could be set free. We, the enemies of God, would be made into sons and daughters. We, the rebels, would be made into worshipers. He died for us. And there is nothing, there's not one single thing we have ever done that makes us deserving of that. There's nothing we've done to earn that. There's nothing we could ever do to pay Him back. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. The bill that is owed is death. The paycheck that we get should get for our sins is death. The paycheck that Jesus took care of the bill that Jesus took care of for our sins is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We get the free gift, free to us, because we didn't have to pay the, the bill, but paid by Jesus willingly and lovingly. As sinners, all we've earned is death, and what He has given us is life. Isn't that amazing? Never let that become trite, boring, Routine to your heart and soul. 
Let that always captivate you and lead to joy and worship and obedience. Like never just say, oh yeah, of course I know all that. Been hearing that my whole life. Again, say, praise be to Jesus. You have done all that so that we could be free and we could be alive. There's an old hymn that I had never really heard until I pastored in the first church in Spearsville. I pastored and it's called Lead Me to Calvary. You may have heard that song, Lead Me to Calvary. Uh, the chorus goes like this, Lest I forget Gethsemane, Lest I forget thine agony, Lest I forget thy love for me, Lead me to Calvary. It's one of the reasons at our church we do communion every single week, because we want to be punched in the soul with the reality every single week of not only the necessity of Jesus' sacrifice because of our sinfulness, but the sufficiency of His sacrifice to set us free and forgive us, and to make us family, make us with one with Him. God, help this gospel never become old and trite. God, may it always captivate our hearts, Christ dying for us, setting us free. Some struggle in our culture with why of Jesus' death, the why of Jesus' death, because the idea of the cross is so offensive, they think it's foolish and ridiculous to believe in something like that. It's so old-fashioned, so bloody, so brutal, barbaric. Why, why in the world would you be so captivated with a man dying on a cross for your sins? I think a lot in the church, probably a lot here, have progressed beyond that, that we see the essentialness of the cross. That's, but that's one danger that some suffer with. Like, why would we be even fooled with that? Uh, the second danger, probably more prone for us here, is to have an intellectual knowledge of the cross without it affecting our everyday life. We can pass the test on penal substitutionary atonement. Like, we could tell you, well, this is why Jesus had to die. You could regurgitate some of the things I just talked about and go to passages in the Bible. But if our life <coughs> is marked more by captivity to sin and not freedom from sin then is the cross really affecting our everyday life? Is it really captivating our hearts? Is Jesus really our treasure? Is He really the, the one we love most of all? We're not living like we're free. Titus 2.14 says, who gave Himself, talking about Jesus, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. So because of Jesus giving His life as a ransom for us, we're free to be zealous for good works. So what should those good works look like? Well, the New Testament is full of those, but we're going to focus on the ones we see in this passage. All the good works we see demonstrated by Jesus. Number one, we have been freed to be submissive to the Father's will. We have been freed to be submissive to the Father's will. Verse 32 has Jesus leading his disciples to Jerusalem. They're heading up from the surrounding area of Judea, not a long trip at all. We're just days away from his triumphal entry in the week of his passion. And Jesus is headed to Jerusalem to face his death, leading his disciples there. No one's dragging Jesus. He's not acting like a prisoner headed to his execution. In fact, it's the disciples who are uncertain. It's the disciples who are shook up and in fear. And Jesus is headed there knowing what is coming. Verse 33. <clears throat> we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, 
And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So this is the third of the passion predictions of Jesus in, in the Gospel of Mark. He predicted this in chapter 8, chapter 9, and now in chapter 10. And this one has the most detail of them all. Incredible detail, in fact. This is submission to the Father's will. Jesus knows what's coming. He's the only one who knows what's coming. And even though he told them what's coming, they still didn't believe it. Because they had no conception in their mind of a crucified Messiah. There's enough, they had no framework to put that idea, which is why they missed it. He told them, in three days, he will rise. If they believed it, they would have been by the tomb waiting for him to come out. But they didn't, because they didn't understand this. They had no framework for this. But Jesus, knowing what's coming, is submitting to the Father's will. Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Everything that's going to happen is according to the plan and purpose and will of God. And here is Jesus leading his disciples to his execution. Totally submissive to the will of his Father. No one's pushing him, dragging him. He's leading them there. Because he had to go. He knew it. In fact, you see one more picture of this, much more subtle, but very real in verse 40. Verse 40. He says, To sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is those for whom it has been prepared. Talking about who will sit on his right and left hands. Jesus says, that's not my decision. But it's for those for whom it's been prepared. Again, Within the triune Godhead, you see the submission of the Son to the Father. Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, You see uh, Jesus making several comments like this throughout the Gospels. He's only doing the work of his Father. He's only doing what he sees his Father doing. Um, Jesus doesn't even know the time and the hour in which the Son will return. Only the Father knows. So God is Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Father nor the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father nor the Son. They're all one God in three persons, distinct yet one. The mystery of the Trinity. And yet within there, we see some of these small distinctions. Here, the Son submitting to the will of the Father about whom it's been prepared to sit on His right hand or His left. Because Jesus died for us and set us free, then we are also free to submit to the gracious will of our Father in every area of our life and follow Him wherever He takes us. It's not like we know what's coming like Jesus did. We don't know what's coming. What's going to happen in your life in 2020? You think you know. You hope you know some. Maybe, maybe it'll be some of this. But you really don't know. There's going to be good things, for sure, by God's grace. And there's going to be some hard things that God's grace will lead you through as well. But we don't know exactly what's coming like Jesus did. But we can trust Him like Jesus trusted His Father. We can submit ourselves to him like Jesus submitted himself to his father. This is the posture of humility, the posture of a child, the posture of a disciple of Jesus. Wherever you lead, Father, I will go. Wherever you lead, I will go. As long as you're leading, I'm following. Because I know wherever you lead is going to be for my good and your glory. It's not just that we trust him with the direction of our life, but we also trust him with the timing of our life. Jesus was always headed to Jerusalem... Uh, the Gospel of Mark is interesting. It's actually split in half. So verses, uh, chapters 1 through 8, Jesus is headed away from Jerusalem. And then beginning in the middle of chapter 8, he's headed back toward Jerusalem. 
But he's always headed to the cross wherever he's going. His entire life was headed in that direction. But not until the fullness of time did he come. Not until the time was right would his death occur. The week of Passover. And you find out that when he's dying, it's at the exact same time that lambs are being slaughtered in the temple for the Passover ritual. The Lamb of God is outside the city being slaughtered on the cross. There's no way he could have made that happen perfectly unless his father was sovereignly in charge of the entire process until the right time. So we can trust God not only with the direction, the timing, but the details of our life. Like all these details that Jesus is predicting. How do you make all this stuff happen to yourself? There are dozens and some say hundreds of details about the life of the Messiah predicted in the Old Testament, prophesied in the Old Testament. All of them written at a minimum 400 years before Jesus showed up as a little baby in the manger. Where he will be born. He would move to Egypt as a young child. The fact he would be betrayed with a kiss. How they would cast lots for his clothes while he died. The fact that his bones would not be broken. That he would be given vinegar to drink. And on and on throughout the Old Testament, these prophecies. Many details Jesus could not have made happen by himself. Yet every single one of them fulfilled perfectly in one man at the right perfect timing. It would be like sitting down and making out a list of dozens of qualities about the President of the United States 500 years from now. 2519. We don't even know that there will be United States in 2519. Much less who the President will be. Or if the President will even be a human. Might be a robot by then. Who knows? And to sit down and write details about this person, their administration, what things happened to them early in life, where they'd be born, things they would carry out during their presidency. What are your chances of getting one of them right? And yet all of these things were foretold about Jesus 400 to 700 years before he ever showed up on the scene. Somebody's in charge of this. Somebody is guiding all of this, and we know who that is. And so we have a Father in heaven who is in control, sovereign over the big things of the universe and the small details of our life. You have a Father in heaven who says that he provides everything for the birds. Are you not more valuable than a bird? He clothes the grass of the field. Won't he also clothe you? He knows every single sparrow that falls to the ground. How much more does he know about you? He knows every single hair on your head. Some of us make that a lot easier on him than others. He has a number of your days written in a book. He calls every star by name. Do you know how many stars there are in the universe? There are num- there we had to invent numbers to give the number of stars in the universe. If he knows the names of every star, how much more does he know the name of every person created in his image? And so you are set free to not live in worry and anxiety and fear, but to trust your Father in heaven and follow him and know he has your future in his loving, gracious hand. Your life your college, your career, your jobs, where you will live, who you will marry, if you'll be married, every child born to you, your spouse, your futures as a spouse, your health, the health of your kids and grandkids, your, your house, your cars, your relationships, where city you'll live in, what church you'll be a part of, every single aspect of your life, who your next pastor will be. He has all of that already planned out according to his purpose and will. And it's a good plan. He's not trying to make us miserable. He's trying to give us his 
best according to His way and His purpose and His means. Everything you need to accomplish His will, He will, he will give. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also be uh, with Him graciously give us all things? So we are free to submit and follow Him who will lead and provide all we need. Secondly, we are free to be gracious and humble with each other. So see this in the, the, the way Jesus treats his disciples. He's leading them to Jerusalem. The text says they are following him in amazement and fear in verse 32. They're just kind of unsure about who this is and what's going on here. Who is this guy? Where are we going? What's this all about? Now, now at least they're still following him, even though they don't know for sure where they're going and what's going to happen. So, so at, at best, they're kind of trailing him around like kids, kind of dumbfounded at the whole purpose and plan behind what he's doing. But then in this context, in that context of their immaturity, you don't see Jesus rebuking them. In fact, he gives them more information. He tells them what's to come. And then you have this amazing exchange between Jesus and two of his closest disciples. Peter, James, and John were Jesus' closest followers. They saw things with Jesus that other disciples did not see. And two of them, these brothers, came and made this request, beginning in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher... We want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink and the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be, be indignant with James and John. Now the question of James and John smacks of immaturity. It's like when your kids begin asking you questions for things. You know, when they're young, like my son Tim, he's four. He thinks, I can do anything. I have all the power in the universe and I have all the money in the world. So everything he sees on an advertisement, can we buy that? Let's buy that. Let's buy it. Tim, do you have any money? Yeah. Uh, where's your money at? I don't know. Uh, so he just, the, 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 the lack of precociousness of a child, they just ask, they just ask, they just ask. Because they think their father in heaven can do anything. Well, they get to a certain age when they begin to realize, okay, dad doesn't have all the power in the universe. He doesn't have all the money in the world. And sometimes I ask things. At a young age, they get distracted, they forget. But a little bit older, they begin to remember, okay, I asked for that and I never got it. They begin to deal with disappointment. So then they, they figure, well, I need to change how I ask. And so they start coming to you and kind of uh, greasing the skids, kind of buttering you up and saying things like, hey, Dad, just say yes to whatever I'm about to ask you. And you're like, uh, no. But go ahead and ask because I'm your father. And you try to teach them, like, you don't have to manipulate me. I'm your father. I'm always going to give you whatever you need or do the best that I can to provide what you need. And I really want to give you things that you want, unless I think it would be more detrimental to your health to give you what you want. And they sometimes eventually learn that. We're still working that out. Our oldest is about to be 18. But you have this immaturity in James and John asking this question. Jesus, uh, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. <laughs> Just say yes. Whatever we're about to ask you. You know, this total immaturity. And Jesus is so gracious and humble, serving them and asking, well, okay, what do you want me to do for you? And they ask him to sit by his, 
his right hand and left hand in glory. Now, there's one aspect of this that's good. They know he's headed for glory. They get that. He is the Messiah. And at some point, he will sit and reign in glory. They don't understand he's got to go through the cross and resurrection first. They think he's about to go into to Jerusalem and, and take charge and overwhelm Jerusalem and Rome. But Jesus has already told them in Matthew 19, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, chronologically, that comes right before this in Mark chapter 10. So they know they're going to be ruling and reigning over him in this eternal state on thrones. James and John are, are, are like, give us the best seats. You know, we don't want to be out there on the outskirts. We want to be closest to you. So it's, it's kind of arrogant, kind of sinful, selfish. We want to have the glory of Jesus. We know it's coming, but we want some of it. So by sitting close to you, we'll get some of your glory. Like, we want you to succeed so we can look great with you. Incredibly audacious and naked in its lack of shame. Like they're just, they're just like kids. They just don't see. Like, you shouldn't ask this. This isn't really, uh, doesn't speak well of you, James and John. Now, ironically, Jesus would soon be in his glory, but not how they were expecting it. And on the cross, you do have one on his right and one on his left. And when Jesus realized, was Jesus realizing this question of cup and baptism, they, but they still don't get what's coming. Will you drink this cup and be baptized with this baptism? Yes, we're willing. But you have no idea. Son, Boys, you have no idea. Okay, you will drink, you will be baptized, you will suffer like the rest of the twelve, but not in the same way. And then it says in verse 41, the other ten are indignant with James and John. So earlier in Mark, you have the twelve arguing over who's the greatest. So their anger is probably more rooted in, man, why didn't we think of asking that question? We could have got the best seats. Than it is like caring about the glory and the, the humility of Jesus. But all through this mess that is the disciples, Jesus is serving them and being so gracious and humble with them and their lack of understanding. He doesn't freak out. He doesn't go off on them. He doesn't yell at them for being so dumb and immature. He's letting them mature and progress as the Spirit is growing in them and the timing of God's will for them. Jesus died so we would be free to be gracious and humble with each other and our immature, silly, dumb, idiotic, ridiculous, well-intentioned, or even sometimes hurtful things we do to each other as the body of Christ. Unless your church is different and you're perfect toward each other all the time. How do you know you're lacking in grace and humility with fellow disciples? If you get angry with them over their sins and mistakes and immaturity. If you look down on them for their choices and decisions and convictions. If you can't freely, willingly, joyfully love and serve them. If you see them in any way elevate yourself above them. Being gracious and humble is getting low enough to lift others up. Not placing yourself higher so you can look down. Isn't that when we are most tempted not to be gracious and humble with each other? When we mess up, make mistakes, sin, make choices we don't agree with. If you are quick to criticize or quick to pounce, recognize this is not even how Jesus treated his immature and growing followers. If you're quick to put yourself in the mature category and quick to put others in the immature category, again, Jesus died to set you free from pride and arrogance. Grace gives the benefit of the doubt to each other. Grace, humility, is not quick to criticize, but quick to listen and understand. 
Grace assumes the best because grace sees where all of this is headed, becoming like Jesus. And so grace and humility allows us to see each other as God sees us, holy and blameless and righteous sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. I had a young guy meeting with, doing premarital counseling with, struggles with shame, despair, just messes up and just beats himself up, beats himself down. And I was like, dude, can you, this week we're meeting at Waffle House at 6 in the morning. I'm like, can you just imagine your bride on your wedding day? Just take a minute. She's in her dress. She's coming down the aisle. She's beautiful. Like, dude, you're going to be a puddle of tears and snot when you see her. Like, you're just going to fall apart at her beauty because every bride is beautiful on that day, right? And you're going to be amazed that God would give you someone like this. And that's how your Father in Heaven sees you all the time in Christ Jesus. So don't beat yourself up and condemn yourself when your Father in Heaven doesn't condemn you because you're in Christ. Not because you're sinless and perfect, but because Jesus paid the price for you to be in His family forever. To be clothed in righteousness forever. Forever. See yourself like this. See each other like this. And we see each other as growing and maturing disciples who are in the process that the Spirit of God is working out, that He will complete. And He will complete it in God's timing and God's way. So we don't have to panic. And we don't have to force each other to grow. I can be gracious and humble with my brother and sister so that even in their sin, I don't have to pounce. But I can lovingly ask questions. And correct. There is a place for confrontation and rebuke, but it's marked by humility and grace. And, it's, and, the, and the stronger we have to be is in response to a lack of repentance. If we just, we, we often start with strength and we haven't even talked to the person. If you just talk to them, if they're a child of God, most people will respond with, man, I'm, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize I was hurting you by doing that. Most people respond like that if they're a child of God. Now, if they're like bowing up, like, I'm not, I didn't do anything wrong, it's your fault, then you have to be a little stronger. But if we would just be gracious and humble in how we first approach them, then we're going to give evidence that we are free because of what Christ Jesus has made possible for us. So lastly, thirdly, Jesus' death has set us free to be humble and great in serving one another. Verses 42, verse 42, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus reveals that in God's kingdom, it's not like the world system where power and control rule and dominate. Jesus says emphatically, it shall not be so among you. In other words, if the way you treat each other is how the Gentiles treat each other, trying to dominate by power and control, you are standing outside of God's kingdom and God's way of relationship. The way of Jesus, the way of the kingdom, is lowly service, sacrifice, being a slave for the good of others. This is the entire ministry of Jesus. This is here in this passage and how he's treating his disciples. This is Jesus in a few hours from now in, in the story when he would do the lowliest task they could imagine by washing their disgusting feet, doing the work of the lowliest slave in the house, even washing the feet of Judas who would betray him. This is us in how we treat each other. This is us in how we treat the least of these. Jesus talks about Matthew 25. 
what we have to be careful of in this is that we don't turn this lowly, kind of lowly service for each other into another religion. In other words, look at all the lowly things I'm doing for others. Look at how great I am in being humble. Look at how sacrificial I am in my service. If that's truly the motivation of your heart, then those acts of service will get old quick. Like if you're coming up here in this building on a weekly basis doing things that you think are humble and lowly, and you're getting burned out, it might be you're not in your area of giftedness, but it also might be your motivation's not right. You're never going to get as much applause as you think you deserve if that's why you do it. But that's how amazingly sinful we are, that we can even turn acts of service for others into a way to glorify ourselves. Now, if you are doing these things with the right motivation, with the right heart, they will lead to true joy, deep abiding joy, and even happiness. Like, even non-Christians have studied happiness and have found that happiness is not found in pursuing things that make you happy, but in selfless acts of kindness for others. But if that's the reason you're doing them, you're headed back into bondage. For them to be truly unselfish and to bring joy, they have to flow from a heart that has received much and can give much. And that's the final thing I want to draw your attention to. The only way this life of grace, humility, submission, joyfully serving others, the only way this marks our life is when we are first served by Christ. Jesus came not to serve, be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. For each of us, that starts with us. Christ has to serve us first by dying for our sins and our bondage to set us free. And only then, only when we become part of the many, are we set free to serve others selflessly in love with joy. Sometimes we're like Peter. Jesus says, Peter, I've got to wash your feet. Oh, no, you're not washing my feet. I've got to wash your feet. That's prideful. That's arrogant. Peter, you don't understand what I'm doing. When Peter finally understood, he's like, wash my whole body then. That's a posture of humility. Pour on me whatever you have for me. Church, if you look at your life this morning and you're filled with guilt and shame because your life is not marked by this kind of humble service to others that Jesus came to serve you, to allow you to do, realize, see, Jesus has first come to serve you. He's come to serve you. Receive that from him. Let him serve you and cleanse you uh, and do everything necessary to set you free to serve others. Submit to that. Receive that. Let him wash you, cleanse you, change you, and fill you with himself so that you can love and serve others in humility for his glory. Don't beat yourself up. Jesus has come to serve you, to raise you up, to send you out to serve others. But if you're here this morning and you're full of pride about how well you do this, I'm such a humble servant. I hope everyone here knows how humble I am in my service. Realize Jesus has come to serve you. <laughs> See that you're not nearly as great as him. He who is the greatest got really low to serve you by dying for your sins, to set you free, to send you out. He's come to serve all of us, no matter what place you're in. Respond today in repentance and faith in Jesus who came and lived and died so we could be free to submit to the will of our Father, to be gracious and humble with each other, and to serve others as Christ Jesus has first served us. I hope and pray 
as you're celebrating Christmas today with your family this week, I hope and pray that that is the deepest core of your being. That's who you are. In whatever way you struggle with that, run back to Jesus. But if you're here today and the Spirit of God has revealed that, I, I don't really know Jesus in this way. I'm just religious. Maybe I made a decision a long time ago. It has no bearing on my life today. Maybe I just don't even want all this stuff, but I know I need it. Please talk to somebody before you leave. Father, I pray for all who are gathered here today that Jesus would be what captivates us more than anything we celebrate, anything we enjoy this week. We could lose everything. All that we get for Christmas could vaporize in a second. And because we have Jesus, we are still good. Our life could fall apart, but because we have Jesus, we are still good. Let our hearts be that captivated. Let our hearts treasure Him that much. And whatever needs to happen to get us there, may you do that work in us today and beyond today. We pray for the glory of Christ alone. In His name, amen.